Good morning. I feel like I haven't been up here for a little while. Been a few weeks, hasn't it? Uh, I was able to have the privilege last week to travel with Clem Ferris, who is one of our overseers who spoke here a couple weeks ago. I had the privilege of traveling with him to Spokane to minister in a couple of our regions beyond churches last week. And I just had a great time with those guys. I, you know, I, I visit with those leaders on a regular basis every month and to see their facilities and to meet some of their leaders and to really be able to spend some time with Destination Church and River's Edge uh, was really a joy to me. And to be able to watch Clem at work with a new group of people was also quite a blessing for me to witness that. So I appreciate that. Uh, it, was, it was very cool. Uh, I want to just... Uh, reiterate what Jason was saying about Easter. Easter is one of those days where a lot of people that normally wouldn't consider going to church, the thought actually crosses their mind. And it's an opportunity to invite people to be a part of our community, to worship with us, to hear from the Word of God. And when people don't, um, they don't make a regular habit out of that or get a regular diet from the Word of God, sometimes it can be very, very powerful to come back uh, to just the basic message of the gospel and what that can do for a person who's, you know, sometimes we've, we've sat under the teaching and we've been in it so long, it kind of becomes a little bit old news to some people or we become a little bit stagnant in it, but it is, it's, it's revelation every time. It's new life every time and the opportunity for people to be able to hear that and to be a part of a community that cares and wants to be community and, and wants to make a difference can really make an impact on someone's life. So I would encourage you to consider inviting those that you're connected with that may be uh, looking for an opportunity or as God leads you. Uh, we, Easter is the, it's the central event of the gospel it is that moment in time that everything hinged, everything moved. Mankind's relationship with God changed in that moment. And a new covenant was introduced and God's people, the church became God's people. The, the gospel began to go to the Gentiles. It was a huge moment in the history of the church. And I want to reflect on some of those thoughts today uh, as we get ready for Easter and we think about this message of the gospel that we carry in our hearts and that changed our lives. And I'm wondering, the, the phrase has been going through my mind this last week about having a gospel-centered life. That our lives would be centered around, just like our faith and this whole, we call this the church age, the birth of the church with the resurrection of Christ until his second coming uh, we call the church age. It's a time where uh, God is adding to his people. He's building his church, revolving around that event of his death and his resurrection. And it's something that you and I as believers need to be well acquainted with, that we need to understand in our own lives and the implications of it in our own lives and also be able then in our interaction with our friends and our family and the people in our circle, be able to articulate and demonstrate really what the truth of the gospel is and live a gospel-centered lives because all everything we believe and, and the way that we live stems from what God did for us. What God initiated before we were ever born, even before the foundations of the world, some scripture refers to. God knew who we were and he knew what would be 
And that moment when Jesus rose from the grave, (laughs) it has such far-reaching implications even for you and I today. Do we comprehend and understand and are we able to demonstrate what those things are? Are we living a gospel-centered life? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. And all these, so much has come out of this passage over the years, theologically and in the way we communicate the gospel. Some of you are familiar with the Romans road. You know that this would be part of that in introducing somebody to the idea of the gospel, what the gospel is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when we start talking about this idea that the gospel is the center of our lives, I think we have to look at this person who we call Lord. Let's just take a moment and do a fun little exercise here and see how we feel about it. Let's substitute that word Lord for boss. Maybe that works a little better in our context since we don't have a society that calls anyone Lord except the Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the boss, how does that settle with you? Sometimes we forget that part of it. What we've done when we've given our lives to Christ and and submitted ourselves to his sacrifice and his resurrection that we're going to celebrate next week is we've made him the boss. What about Father? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is our Father, if you will. You know, we have God the Father, so I don't want to confuse that too much. But the idea that he is in charge, he is the head of the church. When we've given our lives to Christ, we've made him the boss, him the Lord, him the authority in our lives. If we really believe that he is the Lord, then he would be the Lord. It's hard to believe that Or to say that we have faith in Jesus Christ if we don't really believe he is who he says he was and is. He is the boss. Have we really made him the Lord? Are we living that gospel-centered, that Christ-centered life where he is Lord of our lives? I think we need to talk today and cover some of the gospel basics, you know, as we think about Easter I think oftentimes we just depend on other people to know these things and know how to share them with people. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the basics of the gospel because they're the the foundation, they're those building blocks, those blocks in the foundation that we build upon. And sometimes we need to go back and look at the foundation and go, am I still there? Is this the foundation I'm building on? Have I kind of just built out onto the dirt and added onto my house out in an addition, out on the clay or out on the mud? Or am I still on those foundational stones, those blocks of my faith? I think when the other thing to think about, in fact, if, I, if I'm completely honest with you, I, I really believe that um, God is, he's hatching a plan, <laughs> if I could put it that way. 
I think we're coming into a new season. I think that's obvious in the natural. But God has spoken for many, many years over us as a church and I think us as a community that there are days of harvest. Jesus himself said even, even then, fields are white with harvest. Things are ready. People are ready to come into the kingdom. And I think we're looking at entering a season, especially with so much uncertainty and turmoil and chaos in recent times, I really believe that people are asking themselves some very difficult questions. But it's not just people. God's at work behind the scenes. God's the one orchestrating the events of history. God's the one who's leading us towards his ultimate fulfillment. And we're in a moment in time where people are kind of going, wait, what? What now? is going on, and it's an opportunity for us, and I think God is actually orchestrating something for us to bring people into fellowship with him. And I think it's a great time for us to remind ourselves of those basics. And the first thing, the first most basic thing, and I talk about this all the time, is that we are broken. The world is broken. I was had a chance to listen to Dr. Henry Cloud uh, this last two weeks ago. I didn't get to finish the whole thing, but he was talking about how we, we kind of have this underlying perfectionism, and some of us do, and wanting things to be perfect and having an idealism about how things ought to be. And he was talking about how in the beginning of creation and time, everything was up here. We were up here. For those of you that are just listening, I'm holding my hand at about head height. We were up here. Everything was perfect. We were perfect. I was perfect and you were perfect. Okay, we didn't exist yet. And creation was perfect. And our relationship with God was perfect. There was no sin. There was no brokenness in the world. But we made a decision and we fell to here. Creation broke by man's choice. We chose to rebel against God. We chose not to do what his word said what he had commanded us. And we fell and sin became a part of our lives and death entered the scene. And it's kind of interesting because we get frustrated now, don't we? We get frustrated with ourselves and we get frustrated with one another. We get frustrated with our relationship with God because it's not perfect. Wouldn't it be interesting if, if, you know, we, we operate, if we could operate with this idea that I'm perfect and everybody else around me was perfect, how perfect that would be. And we have these ideals in our minds because eternity is in our hearts. Something in our DNA, in our past, I believe, senses that eternity. Like when, when Solomon said he put eternity in the hearts of men. There's something in us that looks at this broken world and go, something's wrong. It just doesn't really make sense that it would be this way. It's not quite right. And I think the whole world, in one way, shape, or form, understands that. But it's important for you and I to remember that. It's broken. It's broke. We can't expect it to be more than broken in its current condition. And this is so important when we're out in our community and in our workplaces and doing our activities and we're relating to other people. Sometimes you just have to identify with their brokenness. You've got to get there on the eye level and go, I know what you're talking about. I feel your pain. I've had pain too. My life's been broken too. And we find things we have in common. And we, these are people that are not believers. This is what Jesus did. Jesus 
came to earth and he, he identified with our weaknesses and our suffering. He could empathize with us now because he, was, he became one of us. Though he was high above all things and superior to all things, the king of all kings made himself low like us and suffered. And he could empathize with us and we need to do the same with the world around us. We are broken and we need to be able to get, on, get down in the dirt with people and go, I understand your brokenness. I'm broken too. And the world is broken. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in a bad way in our basic nature. It's broken. And we start thinking about, you know, Jason encouraging us to invite people to church. And as we get on with this message today about the call of the gospel and the mission of the gospel, it, it, we have to be able to identify with the brokenness. You know, people talk about, well, you know, if you shouldn't preach about sin. You should just focus on this or that. But sin is the problem. It's what we allowed in. It, it's our addiction, if you will. And we have to recognize that it's there. And that it broke us. And it's breaking people every day. And it's the reason that we suffer and die. Which is my next basic point of the gospel. Point number one, basic of the gospel, it's broken. And when you're out there ministering to people and living in the world, just remember that. It's broke. Our idealism doesn't, it's never going to fit. Not in this life. So let's be okay with the brokenness of the world. And be willing to get down in the dirt with people. But here's the consequence of the brokenness. Romans chapter, chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Because of this brokenness, because we sin, because we're sinful in our nature, because mankind is sinful, death has entered the scene. And you, if you've been around any amount of time, I talk about this fairly regularly. <clears throat> and it's a key component to the resurrection of Christ. Because sin came into the world, so did death. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Romans 7, 13, sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And Paul is making this argument in Romans. Romans does a fantastic outline of how this whole picture works. It's why the Romans road comes out of there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, how did death come? It came through sin. What a hopeless situation. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Not very fun stuff, these first two points, are they? But we can't lose touch, as Clem would say, with our depravity and understanding of the actual condition and situation. We're facing so much hopelessness of people in the world. If there weren't hopelessness in the world, we wouldn't have a mission. But there's a vast and broken hopelessness all over the world, and broken people. But here's where our, our mission comes in. Jesus is a solution. Jesus is our solution. He is the answer. It isn't our idealism. It isn't our, uh, all of our thoughts about how we can fix it and make it right. There's only one who can fix it. Only one who can make it right. Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 23, the second half of that verse. We said in the first half, for the wages of sin is death. When I was a little boy, uh, I, I've shared this story before, but I, I just like to share it. 
uh, because it just reminds you of the innocent minds of children, but I couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old. I might have even been younger than that. And I was in a Sunday school in a little Elliston church. I think it was vacation Bible school. We had these these groups that would come through in the summer and do vacation Bible school. And I, there was this lady in there. She seemed old to me, but she probably was in her 20s. <laughs> but, you know, when you're a little kid, that's old. And she was teaching about the wages of sin is death. And I didn't hear anything after that. I tuned out and I cried. I literally sat in my chair at that table and I cried and I went to her crying and she's like what's the matter I'm like I've already sinned I'm hosed (laughs) I didn't use that word but I'm going to hell I've sinned already and then she went on to tell me the other half of this verse (laughs) but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord there's forgiveness for sin Jesus is our solution, not only for us, but for this creation. When I talk about the whole thing breaking, we also then remember that the whole thing becomes redeemed. Creation itself, Romans 8.21, picking up mid-sentence, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This whole thing will be brought out of its bondage to what we have subjected it to through sin. That is good news. And of course, the famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this verse, I mean, there's a reason why it's, Often the first verse you memorize as a kid and something that you carry throughout your whole life is this is packed with very important theological points about this entire situation in which we find ourselves and the gospel that we represent on this earth. We're broken. Death has come because we're broken. But Jesus is our solution to that brokenness. So how then do we get there? Again, referring back to John 3.16, whoever believes. Whoever believes. So we are constantly out there in the world, living our lives, doing our jobs, going to the gym, taking our kids to school, participating in whatever it is we participate with, watching for the opportunity of someone who might believe what we have to tell, the story we have to bring. And how do, we, how do we receive that? By faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8. How then do we rise above this brokenness? How do we go on to what God has called us to? How do we go on to eternal life when this life is over? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. It's the gift of God. And again, Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, when we confess something that we don't actually believe, what, do we, what is that? When we say something that isn't actually true, it's false. It's a lie. 
But out of, our, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we really believe something, it becomes our confession. Not to be confused with being saved by works. But it is by faith. And a gift. Because God chose to have grace on us. And what do we go on to? Relationship with God. Eternal life. All of those benefits that Jesus afforded us that we'll celebrate with his resurrection. Again, we could refer back to John 3.16. What did Jesus say? Whoever believes in him will what? Have eternal life. Very important component. It, we will return, as Henry Cloud was talking about, to the place we fell from. Probably even more so because of our experience. Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. What's going on? Through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. He's bringing everything back to him. When everything broke away from him in the creation, in the fall of creation, God is then returning it all back to him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's not peace right now. There's not peace. There's not a wholeness. There's not a, you know, we, Clem talked about this and I did in the weeks before. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace being a bridge, a bone. Clem described it as a bone being broken that then reheals. That's the word for peace. I talked about the idea of, of a gap relationally and a bid, bridge being built to bring the two back together. That is peace. Jesus made peace. He brought, he's bringing the broken creation back together with God through his blood shed on the cross. Why am I sharing all these things with you? Many of you have been believers for many years. Those are, those are you're almost ready to fall asleep while I'm talking about them. Yet they're the profound foundational things that we need to know. Because we can all inside go, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. But there's something else going on in the world. And today I'm choosing to call them false narratives. The reason we need to know the truth thoroughly in every detail and understand who God is and what he's done for us is there's a lot of other stories being told. What's a narrative? A narrative is a way of telling a story. Okay, and there's a particular na narrative that's given to us by the Word of God, and, and I've just described some of the basic fundamental things of it to you, but there are other things that come along, and we have to look at them and go, is that true? And when we're down in the dirt with some, working with someone who is just broken and hurting, do we recognize those foundational stones that are in their life or our life that are wrong? They're false narratives. They're a way of understanding the story that's actually not true. And I'm going to give you some examples right now. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In the book of Galatians, Paul is rebuking the church in Galatia because they've begun to adopt ideals that are not biblical. They aren't part of the gospel they were taught. They're beginning to insert them in their belief systems and their patterns. And Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What's the gospel? It's good news. It's that greatest story ever told, as some people call it. 
but we as humans are so prone to then pursuing other ways of understanding and telling the story. Other gospels. Not that there is another one, as Paul said, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort. There are distortions of the gospel out there. There's many, many, many different ones. There's no way we could cover them all. Distortions of the gospel of Christ. It's why we focus in on what the truth is. What is the gospel story? What does the scripture teach us? Teach us. Do we know these passages that we've just talked about so that when we're working with someone, because we're, 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 we have a mission and, uh, in the world that we're in, and if we have that really ingrained in us, we have the opportunity to recognize you're believing something that's not true about God or about yourself or about the world. I want to talk about some of those right now. They're assumptions that we operate in. Things that we assume to be true. Somewhere in our lives we adopted them as truth, but have you ever stopped and wondered if your assumptions are true? I'm going to start out with some simple ones. Let's talk about hell. It's a fun subject. When I say hell, what do you think of? Most people, in a traditional sense, think of a place where Satan sits on a throne and he has a pitchfork probably. Not like a hay pitchfork, it's definitely like red, has three prongs, little points, right? He's probably got a tail, right? There's probably fires everywhere, right? You know, that? does the scripture teach us that that's what hell is? You know where the Bible says Satan's throne is? Not in hell. Do you know what hell was made for? Satan's eternal punishment. It's where he's going when this is over. Where did we get these ideas of what things are? There are some connections to the Bible you can make correlations to for sure. But how many people are operating with this idea of what evil is, what hell is, what Satan is, all based on what? The scripture? No. Based on cultural narratives they've, been, they've gleaned along the way. From watching cartoons or hearing stories. Satan doesn't live in hell. Not according to the scripture. What about heaven? Where do we go when we die? What does it look like? Wait a minute. Does the scripture indicate that Jesus comes back and makes all things new here on earth too? What, what do we assume about heaven? Are our assumptions accurate? There are other sillier ones in the Bible. How many wise men were there? You're, not, you're scared to answer now, aren't you? Okay, traditionally, if you have a manger scene at your house that you put out at Christmas, how many wise men are there? Three. Does the Bible say there were three wise men? No. There were three gifts, which leads to the assumption maybe that each one had one. What if there were two and they had three? What if there were ten and only three bought gifts? I don't know. Okay, that's a silly one, but... You have to stop and go, are the assumptions I'm operating with true? Is that really what the Bible says? Money is the root of all what? Money is the root of all evil? Is that what it says? No. But we've been taught that's what it says. But what does it say? The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. 
Big difference between the two. What assumptions are we operating on that aren't in the scripture? And you have to realize that if we want to reach people with this good news, this gospel, we've got to realize that's what they think. That's what some of us think, if we're honest. But we have to realize, wait, that's not true. Let me tell you the truth. Because there are more serious issues, more serious matters. Cleanliness is next to godliness? Definitely not in the Bible. God works in mysterious ways? Well, I would agree that he does, but what's that come from? His ways are not our ways. That's in the Bible. But you hear that quoted all the time, but that's not what it says. God will not give you more than you can handle. No. I think maybe Tyler talked about this not too long ago. What does it actually say? When you're tempted beyond what you can bear, God will give you a way of escape. That's what it actually says. There is a difference. Because what am I left to think? If God won't give me more than I can bear, but I can't deal with it anymore, who am I criticizing? Me. I can't handle it and I should be able to. What a self-defeating thought. I should have the power to deal with this. I should be able to, to win, to stop sinning, to pull myself up by my bootstraps and be what I need to be because God won't give me more than I can bear. He'll give you more than you can bear all the time. He uses it to test you and challenge you and draw you closer to him. God helps those who help themselves. I wish that was in the Bible. It's not. Although we know that there's some good principle there that we could connect to the scripture loosely. How many Chicago Bears fans do we have? Listen, I just have realized why the Chicago Bears never win. Anybody angry about that? Okay, they win sometimes. Why they never really completely succeed? Because Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka misquoted the scripture years ago. And the Bears have been cursed ever since. One time Mike Ditka, he said, like the scripture says, this too shall pass. Does the scripture say that? No, it doesn't. Indicates there's times and seasons and those kinds of things, but that's not what the Bible says. Way to go, Mike. Sorry, all you Bears fans. There are more serious things at stake, though, that influence our theology. Those, those cultural ones are important to know because when we're interacting with people in our community, we have to realize they may not see God accurately. They may not understand Christianity accurately. How many stereotypes are there about Christianity that you hate? I hate those things. I'm out there in the community trying to visit with someone or talk to someone or working with people and they just have these massive stereotypical assumptions that are not true about God or about me, or about us. Here are some more difficult ones. If I disagree, I can disobey. How about some legalistic thinking? We operate on this idea, maybe we don't, but oftentimes we're running into people in the community that have a legalistic understanding of God. I've got to be good enough for God. Brian, who used to lead the church here, tells a story. This makes me sad every time I hear it and think about it. He was, his dad was, he was riding with his dad, and his dad was getting old. And they were sitting somewhere in a car. His dad just cried at the steering wheel and said, I'm so tired of trying to be good enough for God. 
And if we're all honest, I think most of us in this room probably have felt that at one time or another. I'm so tired of trying to be good enough for God. Can we all just let that go now? You won't be. That isn't even the point. And he never asked you to be. That isn't the core of the gospel. It is by the grace of God. Because you can't save yourself. How important is that for you and I to have so thoroughly ingrained in our DNA, in our communication, in our understanding, if you will, in the nature of who we are. I, we, I will work for God. I will work hard. I will do the things that he asks. I want to be that way. But never misunderstanding that somehow that has earned my place with God. And that's not true for anybody. That's true for all of us. You know what I'm saying. It's called bad soteriology. Soteriology is the theology about salvation. It's the doctrine of salvation. How am I actually saved? How is my relationship with God actually restored? How does that happen? And if I don't understand accurately how that happens, how can I help other people do that? But once we do understand that, you run into this all of the time. There's a narrative in the world, and honestly, it's straight from Satan himself. You better work harder to be good enough for God. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough for you. You need to do more. That's a lie. But it's a belief that so many hold is true. How about pictures of the Father God? So many people, and again, all of us probably at one time or another, or even today, wrestle with the idea that God is, he's gritting his teeth at me. He's angry and annoyed. He's frustrated with me. He wants to choke me, probably. Good thing he loves me, too. It's like my mom or my dad. They probably wanted to choke me every once in a while, too. But that's how we see God. So many people see God that way. But is that what the Scripture teaches us about God? Is that just? Is that loving? No. He delights over you, even in your mistakes. Do we really have those beliefs ingrained in us? What about our eschatology? If you grew up in the 80s like I did, your end times theology is very strongly connected to Cold War politics. <laughs> Here we are all these years later going, wait a minute, is everything I believed about the, about the end times true? I'm operating with a lot of assumptions here because somebody one time told me and we all have this obligation and responsibility to go to the scripture ourselves and go, is that true? Do I see that as true according to the scripture? One of the things, I, I'm just going to do this and it's probably going to, I know better, but I'm going to anyway. How about the mark of the beast that we're all receiving through vaccinations? By accident, we're going to end up in hell. I, it just drives me crazy that somehow I'm accidentally going to lose my salvation. How do I understand what the scripture is teaching? What is my thoughts about salvation? Can I, am I going to lose it that way? Am I going to lose my salvation? What does the Bible teach about marks? And if the book of Revelation is John looking at the earth from like a bird's eye view, am I to understand this, all this is spiritual except a few things I just choose to make literal? 
Like, we don't know. We're speculating about the future, but have we actually went and looked for ourselves and studied these things and came to a place of trying to understand what God is trying to show us? Or are we just operating on false narratives, false ways of telling the story, someone else's way of telling the story? We just buy into some other gospel. And Paul said in Galatians, I'm shocked, I'm astonished that you're deserting the gospel. That's not a gospel. That's not even good news. Some of these things. You have to be good enough for God? That's terrible news. We're all in big trouble. Wow, that's a false narrative. Assumptions hijack our fruitfulness. Those poor assumptions hijack our fruitfulness. God has called us to be fruitful He's called us to take this message into the world and see people saved and to radically change lives. But when we're assuming things that are false and we're bringing that falseness into our situation, those parts of our lives can't produce fruit because they're not from God. Don't let your assumptions hijack your fruitfulness and take away your opportunity to minister truth and life into someone's life. Would you stand, please? That time went way too fast. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul refers to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we all are wielding a sword. In the world, not one we lop off people's ears with like Peter, but one that goes in, like the word says, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. It's not, a, it's not just a sword, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And it goes in and it discerns the intentions of the heart and joints and marrow, separates joints and marrow. It's, it's a scalpel. And we're all going around with this word, with this gospel, with these basic truths, and we're helping people adjust in their hearts and orient themselves towards God and hopefully give their lives to God to confess him as the boss of their lives. Lord, we come before you this morning and God just ask that you would empower us all in our stewardship of your word. Lord, that we would look at the assumptions that we operate in and remove the ones that are not of you. God, that we would even be inspired on a journey of investigation into what your word says. And God, I pray, Lord, as you, you said the fields are ready for harvest, Lord, help us to learn and to recognize and to be able to bring in some of that harvest, Lord, to minister to those that are broken to realize the world is broken and get down in the mud with people and go, I get it. And I have some helpful things for you. I have some good news, a gospel. Lord, I pray for each one here, Lord, that you would be opening our eyes to the truth. God, that you'd be helping us serve other people in that same way, bringing people in as your children into the body of Christ. In Jesus' name.
Amen.